0: Turn with me, if you would, back to the prophecy of Zechariah. That's Zechariah in chapter 12. Zechariah 12, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 10. And beloved, indeed, do hear the holy word of our holy God. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. It shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In a day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart. The family of the house of David apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, the family of Shemai apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. And thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may we indeed seek his blessing upon it this evening. We come to the conclusion of our time in these five verses this evening, and of course we are coming to the conclusion as well of our communion season. And I think it's right for us as we look at these five verses as we really ought to, as a text that holds out to us, really, the basics of fellowship with God. It might surprise you to hear me say that, having looked at this text now two times previously, but beloved, these five verses hold out to us what really it is to have communion with the living God. And it might strike you as well, given the content. What we have here are people who are a mourning people. We have here people who were a people under blood guiltiness, no less. But in this text, beloved, make no mistake, this is a text It speaks much to us about what it means to walk with the living God. What it means to have fellowship with Jehovah. And how do we see that? I direct your attention back to the 10th verse once again. The text reads, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. That is, he will reveal to them his gracious spirit. His gracious inclination to show them mercy. But then as I mentioned to you this morning, there is another gift that comes. And that gift is that of supplications, which again could be translated entreaty or prayer. And so you have here the cause. The cause of those petitions that followed. The Lord God has poured upon them this gift, this grace of prayer or supplication. And then we see in the very next line the response, the effect that's wrought. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And they shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now, beloved, we've not up to this point looked at considerable length about on this last line, so allow us just for a moment to think further. We know that this, is, this has become a mourning people. These are those who are murderers, at least murderers in heart, who have now been turned to mourning. But why are they mourning? I want you to notice, as we look at this text, the text is very clear. They are they are not mourning only. And, and this is not remorse only. They are mourning for his sake. For the Lord's sake. And beloved, what's striking is the way the prophet communicates this to us as he writes as the Spirit's penman, is that the kind of mourning that they have in this moment, is, and I I read, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In other words, what we have in this text are a people who are mourning their crime. Yes, they're mourning the fact that they have pierced, in some sense, the Lord. But make no mistake, they are mourning because, beloved, they're mourning because of the offense, the injustice that they have done. They are mourning because of a deep love for the Lord against whom they've sinned. They are mourning for His sake, out of a deep love. In fact, again, as the prophet says, a love like a parent would have for their firstborn. Now, beloved, holding these two lines together then, what do we find? Well, we find something, we find really a revolutionary change, don't we? We, we find here that, that an incredible relationship has genuinely been reversed because in the very first line you have of course the Lord saying to those who are stained with blood guiltiness I will show them reveal to them my gracious disposition and on top of that I will lead them to supplication and to prayer I will cause them to invoke my name to call upon me and then on the other side, those who were the piercers, these ones were told, become mourners because of a deep love for the very one whom they have offended, the very one whom they hated with a murderous hatred. Loved, this is a text about communion with God. A text about what really takes place when the soul is brought to lay hold of the God whom they've hated out of a deep love that begins, as it always must, from God's side. In other words, beloved, what we have here is a picture that those who are the Lord's mourners, these ones enjoy close communion with him. And to show you, beloved, these things from the text, I only want us to take two headings. I want us to look at the mutuality that we find here. And I also want us to see the manner of this changed relationship. So take, first of all, the mutuality. As we look at this text, and we remember our comments from this morning, the very first line of verse 10 is filled with remarkable love. We can't get away from the fact that that what the prophet is communicating here is nothing less than the unsearchable riches of Christ as they belong to God's people and out of a deep and eternal love that he bears toward them. This is the very thing that the prophet has set before the people. On God's part, there is a clear revelation of this deep love. But on man's part, we also see the change as well, don't we? As I just said to you, beloved, as you look at the latter part of verse 10, you find here that this is a people who regard the Lord with a deep love. They mourn for their sins against Him as one would mourn for their firstborn. This is a text that holds out deep love. And take it, beloved, first on God's side. How does the text communicate this to us? In addition to everything that we said this morning, you remember how this is described in the beginning of verse 10. It's something, that this this spirit of grace, this gracious intention on God's part, is described to us as being poured out or poured forth upon the people. What do we do with that? Obviously, from eternity, God bore everlasting and deep love for his own. But how are we supposed to understand this idea that that deep love is poured forth? Well, I think Calvin's very helpful here. He says here, God would not only show mercy to his people, but also make them sensible of that mercy. It is the case that from all of eternity, the Lord God bore toward His own this unspeakable love. But but this text says that this love has been poured forth. The idea being that these ones are now conscious of that. These ones have some sense that this is true, that God indeed is graciously inclined toward them. And beloved, it's the very same thing that you have in the Apostle. As you read in Romans 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. You see the Apostle is communicating to us exactly the same thing in verse 10 of chapter 12 in Zechariah. The idea is very basic. The Lord God has shed abroad His love, made His love known to His people through the ministration of His Spirit. These bowels of mercy that God has toward His own through the Spirit's ministry, that love is made known to souls particularly, and even in sensible ways. But it's not just the case that we're speaking here of an experience. When we think about communion with God and the revelation of his deep love for his own, of course, we are mindful that there must be some ground, some foundation that our faith looks to. And of course, that ground are the promises of God as revealed in God's word. Uh, Beloved, this is perhaps the very kind of thing that in our generation especially, we are disinclined to look at. Uh, What I mean by that is when we look at the scriptures and how they speak to us about communion with God, beloved, it's very much a, a kind of fellowship and communion that the world today scoffs at. You mean a, a communion with God that is predicated upon the written word. Communion with God that, that has a faith that looks not to experience, but, but to the word of God and to his promises made there, and that, that's the kind of communion with God you're talking about. Uh, the world really has no interest in it. And beloved, of course, even in evangelicalism today, that kind of communion certainly is not in vogue. But beloved, that is the foundation. That is faith's formal object, as the older writers would describe. And why is that? Beloved, in the Word, we have set before us so very clearly, even as we saw this morning, that God indeed is graciously disposed to any sinner who takes hold of Christ by faith. That He really has bowels of mercy. That he is one who really does love, everlastingly his own. And you remember, I quote this to you often, but you remember how the writer in Hebrews 6 makes this case. As we look at the Word of God, we are supposed to remember that here the Word God has joined himself under solemn oath to fulfill all that he has promised and all that he has said about himself and about his people. God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Beloved, the oath is found in the word of God. The oath is found in the promises we have here in our text, and beyond it the objective grounds in which this love that God bears toward his own may be found is in the word of God itself. And beloved, of course, most conspicuously in the word, those texts that hold out to us Jesus Christ, hold out to us most brilliantly, the very kind of thing that is described for us here in Zechariah 12. Hereby, we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Again, in this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Beloved, when we think about communion with God, and we think about the revelation of God's love, the surest place, to find that record is in the Word of God itself. There it's confirmed by an oath, as Paul writes in Hebrews 6. There, as John tells us, we have the most conspicuous picture of the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm stressing this point, beloved, because you understand that this kind of communion, again, as I've said already, is not in vogue. The kind of communion that the world thinks about, or or perhaps more particularly that the evangelical world today thinks about, is something that is not at all tied to the Word of God itself. Something that is entirely driven by experience. But in the Word, beloved, in the Word you have an unshakable foundation. Experiences will be fleeting. All you need to do is read the book of Psalms. There you'll find that, that at one moment the psalmist is at the pinnacle. He's at the mountaintop. and the very next moment he's plunged into confusion. His experience is variable. But the Word of God remains. And for that reason, beloved, the promises that are made there are the only foundation for faith. Experiences may help, but the foundation is God's self-revelation in His own Word. And that, beloved, is the basis of communion. Now, as we look at this text, we do need to be mindful that here we don't have just an objective revelation. We do have something that is subjective. This is something that is indeed poured forth upon these who have pierced the Lord. And of course, beloved, when we think about the revelation of God's love, though our resting is in the word of God. the Lord Lord himself does often give his people tokens, sensible tokens of the very thing that's communicated in in our text. Where the soul is not only reading in the text and reading believingly, but the soul even knows by sweet experience those bowels of mercy. Knows by sweet experience the embrace of Christ. And, beloved, that is a reality that's held out to us in the Word of God. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It, again, is the case that our faith must be lodged in the Word and in the promises thereof. Oh, but, beloved, it's so very important to remember as well that our God does send to His people. He does send to His people. These sensible tokens as well. And beloved, note how the scriptures speak of those moments. The bride speaking in the Song of Solomon says, Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. Christian, It is not the case that your experience is greater than the word of God. But those sensible tokens of those bowels of mercy, of that gracious inclination on God's part, are sweet. And should be prayed for. Should be desired in earnest. And beloved, we should be very careful not to limit the hand of our God. Our God is pleased to walk very closely with his own. And even so, says the Scriptures, to the point where the believer could say, I'm sick of love. Even some of our forebears, beloved, knew knew in incredible ways what it was to have the Lord's bowels of mercy poured upon them, such that they would even ask that the Lord would, as it were, stay his hand because they couldn't take any more. We don't live upon those experiences, beloved. We don't. But we should welcome them. We should pray for them. And Christian, as you look at this text, you find also that this is not only one-sided. As I said to you already, here you have a people who were once murderers in heart, had a murderous rage against the Lord Jehovah, but now they mourn. And they mourn because they hold him as an object of deep love. These are ones, in other words, who can be be said as it was of Peter's congregation, unto you which believe he is precious. The very one whom they've pierced in their heart has become precious to them. The very one whom they've hated now becomes the object of their love and their delight. Such that, of course, beloved, the heart cries, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire besides thee. Beloved, it's the case as well that the believer, the soul that has been brought to Christ, beloved, that soul does find Christ precious. He may have all kinds of variable experiences. He may be under all kinds of temptations. He may be even confused as to his own state but at his very base, at his irreducible minimum, he must confess that Christ is precious. And beloved, what we have in this text then is nothing less than the remarkable change wrought in the new birth. Here you have a people who have had the bowels of mercy, as it were, shown to them, the Spirit of God coming and inducing them to communion with God and beloved what you see here then is a man made new. How marvelous then is the new birth. How remarkable that those who pierce the Lord would mourn for him. And beloved, we can go even further, can't we? The scriptures say that the words of the people of God are thus, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. These murderers in heart are made martyrs for God. Such is the change, Christian. Such is the change, beloved, that is wrought in the new birth. The one whom they once despise, they now love. Now, beloved, if that is the mutuality, a deep love, starting on God's part, but a love, of course, that that the soul has, through regeneration for God. What of the manner? What of the manner of this communion? We're told in the text that the Lord God would pour supplications upon his people and mourning. What do we make of that? What do we make of this this new and, and this, as it were, given drive to prayer? I think it's helpful if we look at this text mindful that the word supplication or entreaty of course, has behind it something else. When we think about prayer, as the older writers remind us, beloved, prayer is, as it were, the daughter of faith. You see, to pray aright, to to really, beloved, know by experience what is in this text, to be those who are filled with supplication, all of that, beloved, flows from an unfeigned faith. And beloved, again, even the morning here, when we look at the morning, of course, we understand that behind that is a real love and a love, as we remember, that must accompany faith, must accompany believing. All of these things, both the supplication and the mourning, require genuine, that is, unfeigned, saving faith. At its bottom, these things are impossible, aside from real faith. What we find then, Christian, is that the manner of this communion is through faith as its instrument. And I want us to see that just briefly under a few, different, a few further thoughts. You see, beloved, if we were to try to base our, our communion, that is, our enjoyment of communion with God only on experience, we'll be left with the experience of the psalmist. You remember in Psalm 77, again a psalm that I quote to you often, you remember these questions. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will He be favorable no more? Is His mercy clean gone forever? Doth he, does this promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath He, sh- hath he in anger shut up His tender mercies? You see what the psalmist is saying. As he looks at himself, as he looks at the experiences in his own heart, as he looks at the providences around him, the experiences seem to be proclaiming to him that God is his enemy. And beloved, if the enjoyment of one's experience in communion with God is predicated upon such experiences. Beloved, how variable a life would that be? In fact, in Psalm 77, at the end of all of those questions, the psalmist says, this is mine infirmity. In other words, he comes to himself and he realizes, I have been, I have been looking at God, I have been seeing my state with God upon things that are variable, things that aren't sure. And then the psalmist goes on to describe the very things that are given to us in the Word of God. He will remember the works of God of old. Beloved, the Word of God, faith in that Word, is the instrument, the instrument by which we enjoy this communion. Without it, there is no communion. Beloved, without it, we may have fleeting experiences, but they're only that. But with, beloved, faith, With a faith that is fixed upon the promises of God, what do we find in the Word? Let me just give you just a few examples, very briefly. Take Job. Job, a man who was under all kinds of difficult providences, and and again, not difficulties only exterior to himself, but difficulties in his soul. The oppression that he felt within, beloved, as you read through the book of Job, was by far greater than even the great providential hardships that he faced. Of all men, you would expect that the kinds of questions that you have in Psalm 77 would always be on his lips. And certainly, beloved, at times Job takes missteps, and at the end of the book we find the Lord dealing with him. But what we do see in Job 13 and in Job 19 is that those who have an unfeigned faith who are fixed upon the promises of the Redeemer can say that though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Who can say though He counts me for an enemy, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Beloved, everything, everything in Job must come down to this. Does he take God at His word? Is his faith fixed upon the promise of Christ as revealed in that word? If it is, then let every experience come as it may. The man will still stand. Take another example from Enoch. Enoch, he, we're told in Genesis, walked with God. But how? The writer of the Hebrews is so clear, isn't he? By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He walked by faith. He was in so close communion with the Most High. He he enjoyed a remarkable closeness that would really mark the Scriptures right through. But the writer to the Hebrews is very clear. What really was the instrument, as it were, behind this great relationship? Enoch walked by faith. Beloved, it is the case that one day, as the old martyrs would tell us, we'll exchange the name believer for seer. One day, faith indeed will become sight. But Christian, in the meantime, that faith that we find in this text that induces the kind of prayer that we see, that induces that kind of love that we find here, Beloved, it's a faith that holds to divine promises. And as such, and from that, it offers earnest supplication. You see, Christian, you and I, we are, we're like the bride. We're like the bride, communing with our spouse at a distance, but en route to him. No, we do not see things as we one day will. But the word of God is very clear. That now on this side, Christian, your walk with the Lord must be by faith. Yes, it's the case that you enter this life by faith. But beloved, you walk by it as well. Your whole pilgrimage is by faith. Now, if that's the case, Christian, if what the text is holding out to us is that here you have real communion between God and his people, and that the manner of this communion is through an unfeigned faith that produces these supplications in this morning. And, beloved, the question is, is this something that we crave? And do we crave it in the way that we have it in this text? Beloved, do you crave a deeper, a deeper knowledge and even sense of the bowels of mercy that the Lord God holds for all who are his? Do you regard him as more precious to you than life? Beloved, both questions come to us directly from this text. And both questions at the end of the communion certainly are fitting for us to ask. But Christian, as we look at this text, a text that is so, so filled with tokens of divine love, I would be remiss in not reminding you that in that first line of verse 10, you and I have a wonderful consolation and an encouragement to walk ever closer with the Lord. Beloved, he pours forth, in this text, his sensible mercies. But He also pours forth supplication. He even would induce his people to pray. And beloved, that is a token of his desire to commune with his people. He could have simply spared them hell. He could have simply shown them grace and left them insensible of it. But instead, he would have them, he would have them know his mercy. And then more than that, he would also cause them to commune with him, to draw near to the throne of grace. Love this should make us marvel. It should make us marvel because this is the one whom you and I by nature hated. We were deicides at heart. And yet in this text, we're told that the Lord God delights to save deicides at heart. And more than that, that he actually craves, really desires them to, to cry out to him, to walk in fellowship with Him, as we read in First John 1. And, beloved, that will certainly drive us to our knees, won't it? That will be the thing that will drive us to seeking Him more, is the knowledge that the Lord God delights that His people do so. But even hear these words. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O my dove that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Lord, as your pastor, I have nothing else to give you to encourage you to prayer, and to encourage you to seek what you have in this text. You have nothing less than the express desire of the Lord that his people would draw near to him, and that from a deep love. And so, Christian, how much is offered to us? And yes, how little have we taken any of it? But the exhortation is to take now. Our God is mercifully disposed to his own. Our God has bowels of mercy and even delights that his people would walk closely with him. And beloved, that is the clarion call of this text. Walk by faith. Seek these things by faith, beloved. And you'll find, as it is with every promise, not one word falls to the ground. Not one word. Amen.